0: Okay, I wanted just before we um, we we'll leave this slide up as we start the next section on your tables. What, it, what for you, and I know that we're you know coming here from a very wide range of you know, some of us are doing this, we are literally about to preach through it, and others of us are studying it for the first time almost. But what for you is the, the big interpretative question that you would like to? Go home on Thursday having resolved in your mind, like about Revelation. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think if I left without some sense of clarity on this, that would be annoying. Okay? So, can you just share like, what that is? Because I imagine they'll be quite different. I some of you, and, and obviously, if the answer is, I really don't know, just how on earth do you preach this thing, would, that's fine too. But if some of you come through saying, I'd really like to get my head around that, or this is the theme that's, well, the reason I came here really is because of this. Just can you talk, just talk on your tables? Share what that is. I'd love to hear a bit of feedback in a moment, but it'd be good to know on your tables what that is. Okay, why did you come? Okay, I'd love to hear any. Um, love to hear some some comments, really. Like, why did why did you come? Um, unless you're already asking that question, and I don't know why did I come, but you know what? Table over there in the corner. anybody on that table want to go what what anything anything you guys were talking about well everyone's looking at you john i don't know why that is huh what does it all mean okay pretty pretty narrow and focused that's good okay any anybody with anything more specific yeah 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 that's all yeah it's honest isn't it um so I, I almost wish revelation wasn't in the bible sometimes because i hear so many weird things said about it i wanted to go away with something a bit more that i felt like i could actually make make yeah, make it work and uh and be happy to read it and preach it and so on okay great anybody else over, anyone over here <laughs> your church think you know it all and you, and you don't um so yeah that's always alarming isn't it okay well you're the expert and you're like oh. um yeah so interesting so actually not specific things as such but like the whole thing and i it's just good for me to hear that in some ways because what are you what about you The significance of the jewels in the construction of the New Jerusalem, yeah? That's that's the kind of niche question I'm asking. About, you know. What is the story there? Great, we'll definitely do that. That's good. But, yeah. So, Alad, I've just found out, Alid is from Penny Lane. Isn't that quite a cool place to be from? Don't you think you're just going to say, oh, I'm from Penny Lane? Was like, anyway, sorry, Revelation. Yeah. And then that into the Yeah. Yeah, great. Yeah, so literalism and, and and things like numbers which are yeah, yeah how you, how literal are you going to go and are you consistent in the literalism you use? Yeah. Yeah, great. Oh, that's really helpful. Okay, good. So um, that yeah, dan go. Yeah. Figuring that out theologically. Yeah. It, it? Wonderful. Yeah. So, the implications of revelation for uh, perseverance and assurance. And, and does revelation provide you? If, does the very fact of not really preaching revelation for the reasons that you guys have given actually mean that you don't warn your church enough? Um, because it's, you know, generally the books with lots of warnings get preached less than the books with lots of guarantees. Yeah. I would say. I'm, just my experience of church life is. Well, how many of us have done a series on Ephesians or Romans in the last five years? How many of us have done a series on 2 Peter or Revelation in the last five years? You see what I mean? I, I, I think that's the, that's the probably what, isn't it? That The ones which warn more are almost less, well, they're just less sunny. They're less popular probably for us. And does that take something out? And interestingly, I think would say preaching it here... It's really, it's really helped us. Not, not because it's finally enabled us to yell at people, but actually some, the, the application after some of the passages of Revelation cannot be anything but. You watch your life. Watch out. This is what this is the, the devil is after you. This is, and so I think that's a, really, a really, that's a great reason to have come. That's a really powerful, we found pastorally, that's been very important for us. Interestingly, we in this church have almost the opposite problem that well, the opposite problem, both problems probably, but a problem that I was not familiar with in my previous church, which is where people, whenever you preach warnings in my previous church, people would be like, well, you know, I don't really want that. We're just, we're all about grace. Um, because there was a, it's a very strongly sort of grace. Whereas I found in, in this church, you've got some people like that, but you've also got quite a lot of people in saying, what is the deal? Why do you guys never preach judgment? Like there's lots of judgment in the Bible. Where has it gone? You know, And so we've, in some ways, Revelation has spoken to that, which has been quite powerful. And again, on that, on that line, it's, forces you to confront your theological systems and work out is that actually faithfully biblical that's great so okay plenty of reasons and i imagine many many others as well um so yeah thanks for sharing that it just helps me to hear in a way what sorts of things people are living with um when i Ignore all of those answers for a moment and talk about something else, um, which was next on my notes. No, I want to come back to the question of purpose of Revelation. These are two of my favorite quotes on the way Revelation functions and what it's trying to do then and now. The first is uh, two comments from Richard Borkham on what I'm saying, Revelation then. The fact that John explicitly and carefully contextualizes his prophetic message in seven specific contexts makes it possible for us to resist a common generalization about Revelation that it's a book written for the consolation and encouragement of Christians suffering persecution in order to assure them that their oppressors will be judged and they will be vindicated in the end. Now, pause there. When I read that, I, was, I felt, oh no, because that's what I t- thought Revelation was as well. And I thought, oh, I've probably taught this stuff. And Richard Borkham's about to tell me I've missed the point. And it's really interesting the way he goes there. By no means all of his readers were poor and persecuted by an oppressive system. Many were affluent and compromising with the oppressive system. The latter offered not consolation and encouragement, but severe warnings and calls to repent. For these Christians, the judgments which are so vividly described in the rest of the book should appear not as judgments on their enemies so much as judgments they themselves were in danger of incurring since worshipping the beast was not something only their pagan neighbours did. Worshipping the beast was something many of John's Christian readers were tempted to do or were actually doing. And that's really helped me because I think I would naturally, and very similar to the point you were making just now actually, that the temptation would be this is a book of reassurance and encouragement and don't worry when people try and kill you, God will vindicate you which is obviously true, but when you read the seven letters in particular, you go, that's ah, not the whole story at all. Two of the churches, it's like, well done, hang in there. Three of the churches, it's a bit, a bit more ambiguous. You're doing this, all right, you've got to watch, watch out there. And two of the churches get both barrels. They get no commendation at all. They get slammed for what they're doing. And so if that balance is representative of the audience as a whole, and I think it is, you would go two-sevenths of the Church in the world, or two-sevenths of us, or whatever, need to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Two-sevenths need to hear, you are about to get spat out of my mouth. And three of, three-sevenths three of us need to hear, it's a bit of both. Now, I'm not saying you should map it as numerically as that, but you understand that's the flavour of the letters, isn't it? And Borkham, I think, is making a very helpful challenge that just don't resort to... You know, oh, by the way, are you now dividing up your table as to which is which? <laughs> that is deliciously petty, and I'm really pleased we've got into that on in the first day. Um, and there is... But it's, it's quite a challenge, isn't it? Because, although, again, the, the if I'm, you know, what I want to be, if I'm not all the time, probably, but I want to be a, a sort of sunny Calvinist. You know, I, I'm, I'm going, I, in the sense that I believe in the doctrines of grace, and I'm going to preach them, I'm, I'm ambivalent about some of the five points, but I'm kind of broadly reforming my framework, and I want to be an upbeat Calvinist who's continually reassuring people that they're going to be fine. And I do find, at a, at a level of personality, not exegesis, just personality, a challenge of saying, I did, when I preached the letter to Laodicea, I was thinking, this is just a hard thing to say out loud. Jesus, because I almost, I almost don't feel, uh, shy away a bit from that being the Jesus of the Gospels. And I think, and then you, of course, you reflect and you think, there is nothing that Jesus says in those seven letters that he doesn't also say in the Gospels in terms of the warnings he gives. He's, he warns people in the Gospels even more than he does in those letters. And I'm thinking, why have I got such a, you know, it just doesn't sit with me. And I think Borkham's challenge is really helpful there because it puts in, Perspective. Of course, you assure people here, but you're assuring people who are dying for their faith. That's many of us, that's not our context. Actually, for many of our listeners, the warnings are at least as much, if not more, the pastoral application as the, the, the sort of reassurances. Um, so I think in many ways that does touch on what, exactly what Dan was just raising. So that's a really, to me, that was really helpful in speaking to it then, and obviously it applies to the now as well, but it was a, mainly a comment about the original audience. But I also like. In a completely different vein, the way Peterson comes at the issue, again, he just comes at things from a different angle on many areas. And I really like this remark. I do not read Revelation to get additional information about the life of faith in Christ. I've read it all before, in law and prophet, in gospel and epistle. But there is a new way to say it. I read the Revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. The imagination is our way into the divine imagination, permitting us to see wholly as whole and holy, what we perceive as scattered, as order what we perceive as random, Wendell Berry. St. John uses words the way poets do, recombining them in fresh ways so that old truth is freshly perceived. Imagine a pot of stew on a stove. A person enters the house and becomes aware of rich aromas coming from the kitchen. The smells are inviting. He guesses at some of the ingredients. He asks others in the house what's in the pot and gets different opinions. The cook doesn't seem to be anywhere around. Finally, everyone troops into the kitchen. One of the company takes the lid from the pot. They all crowd close and peer into it. Uncovered, the stew, with all its ingredients, is exposed to the eye. Apocalypse! What was guessed at is now known in detail. I just think that's a beautiful summary of what Revelation is. I, I, it's a sort of drawing, what on earth is going on here? A bit like the question you asked just now, like, what is going on in this book? And you come in and somebody opens the lid and you go, oh, that's what it is. The, the sort of s- the smells, and the, it's a very, as we'll see in a minute, a very, very sensory book, much more sensory than any other book in Scripture that I can think of. And it's a, a very deliberate attempt to evoke all of our imaginative senses in order to try and get us to feel in our bones the truths of the Gospel, which... I'm not sure. He's, I think he might be overstating it slightly, but he's saying, you don't need, there's no new information in the book of Revelation, Peterson is saying. You know it already. You've got it already everywhere else in the Bible, but Revelation just says it better, or it says it in more color. And I think that's a really helpful perspective. Now, that, in a sense, a comment on purpose. I want to talk for a minute about the, we'll probably spend a bit longer on this one. Talk a little bit about the plot of Revelation, if you can call it that. And I think you can. And I've already said this, that I think that the sort of very cyclical reading of Revelation, where basically we go round and round and round, is not, does not sit that well with me. I think that Revelation is trying to take us somewhere, and that there is a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it's not as easy to read, in a sense, as a regular story. But I think it's, it's definitely got a plot. It's unfolding. And I, this is you know just because you don't get your money's worth if you don't get an acronym to take home with you the just spelling out the word reveal but like revealing revelation and six ways of thinking about the plot these are not sequential these are six different models for talking about the story and again i think this is i think this is a wilsonism i don't think it's a i don't know if i got it from somewhere else i think it's me um but one of the one of the ones which i just love is the idea that revelation is a romance that and it and if you we backpedal for a second to the, the, the page with the... Uh, no, 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 not that way. No, no, that's giving away too many trade secrets. Yeah. You have got the notes, but I haven't. So I need to put it on that one. So the, if you go, come back here, um, the idea that really, you, you, if you come down the bottom and uh, we've got Jesus, the unveiling of the harlot and the bride, and then in the middle you've got the long vision of God's throne, you really have the lover... And the beloved, but in between there is the other woman, and that it's actually a romantic story. That at the very beginning of the story you're introduced to the to the lover, and you actually there's, as we'll see in a moment, I see probably tomorrow morning, a effectively like a love song, song of songs style. Proclaimed over Jesus, that Jesus is described in language that's very reminiscent of the Song of Songs' description of the lover and the beloved. You have a lover introduced in almost quite romantic language as it pans down from his head to his feet and back up again. And then at the end of the story, you have this gorgeous bride who is described not only as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, but also as the bridal city in fullness and perfection and all of the jewels that James is going to do an extended study on in the course of the next 48 hours. An incredible diversity, beautiful color. And so you have this beautiful savior and this beautiful bride, but of course, in between, the plot is almost always the turbulent ups and downs of how this woman is being, you know, how the, basically how the relationship between the lover and the loved is getting interrupted by the other woman, whoever you call her. You could call her Jezebel, you could call her Babylon, you could call her a prostitute sitting on a scarlet beast. You could call her a beast out of the sea, a beast out of that. Whatever you think she is, you have this other sort of romantic entanglement that is distracting the beloved from the lover and in that sense revelation is a romance and it's a journey a bit like like in the garden you get introduced to the male and then you get introduced then the female is introduced but there is also a snake who comes in to try and destroy the relationship and that's what you have here you have your, you're introduced to your new adam jesus and you actually don't meet in her all of her glory the new eve until the very end of the book and it's when that finally happens, that's the resolution that we're waiting for. One of the convictions that's come to me, that didn't come to me when I read through the book and prepared these notes, but came through as I preached it, was how far the high point of the future hope of the book of Revelation centres not on the new creation, but on the church. I just hadn't seen it. I, mean, I hadn't even seen it studying it and reading all of these. I thought, ah, oh, this basically the new creation is the build-up point. And as hopefully when we get there on Thursday morning, I might be able to take some of you with me on that that I think that the that John effectively goes eight verses I saw in new, new creation and there was nothing bad in it and that's where you and I and Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and everybody who's ever done this kind of fiction would wallow indefinitely but John doesn't he goes eight verses on that and then he said from chapter 21 9 through to the 22 5 come let me show you the bride that's where I want you to look I want you to see her and you guys, are, and not wrongly, right? Don't, I don't think we overdo eschatology in our churches, the ones I know anyway. So I'm not saying let's do less of that, but I just think having done that and having said, this is the vision of the future world, John says, but now look, the, the brides. Do you see her? Do you see how glorious she is? This bridal city, look. Here's how long she was. Here's how wide she was. Here's how tall she was. This is what she was wearing. These are all the foundations and the stones and the labels. Look at it. And we were all going, oh. Like you, basically, what are all the jewels all about? That's a bit rant. But, but we do that. We all do that. Like I'm James is speaking for all of us, probably. I don't get what... I don't even know what Chrysoprase is. But I can understand no more death. But John, in some ways, is bookending this more in the sense of a romance than he is even in the sense of a world being renewed. And I find that arresting and helpful. And so the, for me, the, the romance plot from Christ via the harlot, or if I, if I call her the other woman for now, to the church, the bride, is... A very powerful thread in the book. And of course, he, he is glorified as she is glorified. It's, and that's what, that's what happens, isn't it? The, effectively, marriage, the glory of one glorifies and beautifies the other. So as the bride is... There's no sense in Revelation that somehow spending the penultimate chapter just wallowing in the beauty of the church detracts from the glory of Christ. It doesn't at all. The glory of the church displays and reflects the glory of Christ. That's why you don't need any lamp in the city, because the lamp is the glory of the Lamb. So... I just think Revelation is a romance. It's a, it's a, a great love story, and of course, many biblical books are. Revelation is also. Oh, sorry, I need to go back to my thing, don't I? Revelation is also an Exodus story, and this is the one of the six that has been the most helpful to me in demystifying the weirdy, weirdy symbol readings of Revelation in our local church. Because as soon as you start saying, "Have you noticed?" Like basically, every time you come across a locust or a boil, or a gnat, or a river turning to bloods, and you start listing them and everyone goes, oh yeah. But a lot of people never see it. And so they're going, oh, locusts dressed like scorpions. What on earth could that mean? You go, you guys, this is all Exodus. We've met all of that. We happen to be fortunate because we're living under the grace of God providentially. But we did Exodus last year and then Revelation this year. So you can just pick up on one to to feed the other. But even if we hadn't, it's very obvious. As soon as you start saying, hang on a second, this is a book that seems in the central sections that we just were looking at there, you know, the bit that freaks people out is this bit in the middle, right? But you look at that and you say most of those concern plagues or frogs or boils or hail or rivers of blood or locusts or livestock dying or darkness in the middle of the day or all of them that actually this is an exodus story and it's deliberately telling us what it's like when not just goshen or egypt gets shaken but the whole world gets shaken and the people of god get liberated from captivity to pharaoh slash beast slash devil and liberated through their own red sea into a promised land of hope and glory and that that When you read the book that way, it doesn't necessarily mean you immediately know, ah, the flying locust scorpions are these things, but it means you're not weirded out by the whole thing. You go, yeah, that's just what I'd expect. This, if I was going to tell a story about the people of God being rescued from a terrifying enemy into a glorious future, of course the image I would use to do that would be the Exodus. And of course I would fill that book with Exodus imagery because otherwise what sort of metaphors would I have to, at my disposal? That, that's Israel's story. And so that, that Exodus story, when you then, we'll, we'll go more into more detail on this when we get into the details of the text tomorrow, but even that there are 10 plagues that are separated into a 3 and a 7, but there are 10 plagues upon oppressors. They get saved by the blood of the Lamb, and they, that happens very early on in the book, that the blood of the Lamb to save, this is one of the reasons I'm not a futurist, by the way, because the salvation the ascension of Jesus to heaven's throne room and the victory of Jesus over everybody else has already happened when the major second vision starts. And I don't think that's talking about the future at all. I think that's talking about that's true right now. And if it wasn't true, none of us would none of us would be here, I suspect. You know what I mean? So I I know there'd be a response to that from a futurist, but I that's To me that's quite key in understanding the Exodus shape of the story is the redemption from the blood of the Lamb happens at the start really and sets up all the others so the plagues don't come on the people of God, they come on Pharaoh and Pharaoh's armies. And then the martyrs of course are freed into a heavenly promised land via a wilderness. And as we'll see that wilderness then gets turned into a Babylonian exile as well. So it's an Exodus story and that um, to me, the main payoff for that has been helping people not get freaked by the weird and wonderful symbols. And I've decided not to do it in the end, but you you could make a whole presentation of the fascinating images that people in church history have drawn of some of these terrifying creatures and how and there are people who do go, this is a, that's Apache helicopters and that's the armies of this and that's the people. And you say, that's, that's, don't worry about what a flying locus scorpion is. This is Exodus language and it's trying to help you see the fact that God's going to vindicate you and crush his enemies. It's so an extra story. It's also a victory story. And this, I just think Lightheart's quote here is so helpful um, that in, I just want to quote it. The message of Revelation is not Jesus wins, which I went, oh no, because that's what I've said it is for years, right? So that's not the message of Revelation. When Revelation begins, Jesus has won. He's already glorified, he's already received the kingdom. The message is, we win by faithful witness and song, and in triumphing through Jesus, we receive the kingdom. And when you, Now, obviously, that will get an amen from some. Of course, Jesus has won. And I think everybody who reads Revelation in any way knows that's true. But I do think Lighthouse is making an important point there, which is that the, the thing that you go, oh, wow, yeah, that's the contribution of Revelation to biblical theology, is not, did you know Jesus is victorious? Jesus is conquered. That's not a surprise at all. The surprise in the book is that the martyrs conquer themselves by being in Christ and by suffering and receiving the kingdom. That's the that's the contribution. So who are the winners, the overcomers? You realise the ones who overcome, the ones who conquer, are Christians in the Book of Revelation. And obviously Jesus conquers too, you know, and is the foundation. Of, oh yeah, we'll let Jesus conquer as well. No, I mean, I'm you know, Jesus's victory is the foundation for ours. But when you look at the appearance of the that verb. Um, Nikao and, or, or kind of the word Nike, or you know those. Whether well, that's how we would often pronounce it now, you know the victory or the overcoming. That's regularly being used of Christians. The point of Revelation is you win, not just he does. That's very, to me, that's very helpful just in terms of rebalancing. You, know, you, you didn't need Revelation to tell you Jesus wins. You get that from anywhere, any number of other places. And then we have exile. So. In some ways, in the second half of the book, the, the controlling story in the Old Testament background to the book switches subtly, you might say, from being an Exodus background to the story of exile. So, in chapter fifteen, you get the Song of Moses, in which you know which is the equivalent of the song that they sing on the far side of the Red Sea, and Moses, you know, sing Israel. He has triumphed, glorious. He's thrown the horse and his rider into the sea, and they all sing and dance. And at that point, the the controlling narrative for the book shifts gradually but recognizably from being an exodus shaped story to an exile shaped story and the enemy is no longer the pharaoh figure who gets judged with plagues it's the babylon figure who is in a wilderness and who is riding a scarlet beast and so that sort of the sh- in, in some ways it's a ho- the whole thing is colored by the exodus but it gradually looks more exile like as the story continues and of course, by the end, you have God bringing his people out of exile and literally saying, come out of her, my people. Get out. Otherwise, you're going to get destroyed by the plagues that are destroying her. Come out. But then they get put into a new city. And of course, it's a new Jerusalem. So it's a new homecoming. There's a, there's a new Nehemiah story or a new Ezra story, as well as a new Exodus story in that sense. So Revelation's an exile. Revelation is also, obviously, an apocalypse. That is that the plot of Revelation, although all of those are telling the story much from the narrative of Revelation as a whole and of Israel, but the apocalypse element of Revelation means that it is not only the story of that generation or of Israel, it's also the story of every generation of the people of God, and that's where you get to, you do your, your boomerang and you throw, you, know, you throw away Revelation for the first century, but it always comes back and hits your generation because this always happens and exposes the patterns of worldly empire and divine justice. And in that sense, you can have your, I think, you can have your preacher's cake and eat your idealist one, which is great. Because that means it, you can, you know, cynically, you can say, well, that means it makes ethical sense and it will preach, right? That's a, That makes it look like you contrived it. But I think that's the payoff, at least for me. But I think it's consistently a better reading overall because you're seeing it as an apocalypse. Therefore, you're saying, this doesn't just... It's not that first century powers were the only ones who were, scarlet, were, you know, were bestial and desired to devour the church. It's not like the devil has only done that in that generation. He does it all the time. And the symbols transpose and to apply to different things, but that's why, yeah, you can, if you want, say, well, the beast is kind of like Hitler and might be kind of like you know, whoever else. But I don't think that's its original meaning, but it certainly applies if you read it that way now. And then finally, in this one, you know, perhaps a bit more novel, but I think really helpfully so, revelation the plot of Revelation can also be seen as a liturgy, as a worship service. And when I was, um, I was writing my book, Spirit and Sacrament, just, just towards the end of writing it, talking a lot about liturgy and its formative power, and I'd done a lot of work on 1 Corinthians, so I knew, yeah, if you wanted to assemble a Christian liturgy from 1 Corinthians, you can basically get every element that the church has ever used in liturgy from that one letter. And, uh, and it wasn't until quite late in the process I realised the same is true of Revelation. Revelation is absolutely chock full of liturgical elements and in some ways it takes the form of a liturgy of a worship service. So there's a call to worship and a benediction. There's an immediate doxology. There are letters which are then supposed to be read aloud and explained to the church. There is then a response in chapters 4 and 5 of praise, of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There's a reading from a scroll which gets eaten and then preached. There is prophetic preaching, declaring not just this is what the word of God says, but thus says the Lord to you now. There are bowls of wine, which then get sort of poured out. There is a wedding feast, there's a blessing, there's a commission, and of course there's the Maranatha prayer, come Lord Jesus. It's a, it's a liturgy. That's a very strange liturgy, and I'm not saying that if you were to come into church on Sunday and say, right, okay, today we're gonna, <laughs> our church worship is all going to be governed by revelation, and you just did the, enacted the whole thing. It'd probably be kind of weird, but... It might be if, if I don't know if anyone's ever done it. Are you raising your hand for that reason? What were you in the order of Revelation? Oh, sure. Yes, a lot of yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. 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 Yes. Yes, yeah, so the Eastern Orthodox would see themselves as participating in the heavenly liturgy. I didn't know. I don't know if you are saying that, they, that the the structure of the liturgy is shaped this way, but the but the narrative drama of being caught up into the throne room of heaven, and therefore even obviously the way they use pictures, which I'm not such a fan of, but the way that they use many other elements, incense. I think. I mean, it's not part of my church culture, but I don't think you can argue against it biblically. And it's sim- it's symbolic fragrance of prayer and so on. It's a beautiful, very very sensory book to try and communicate the riches of biblical worship. And I just think it's quite interesting to read Revelation that way. You could preach through the book liturgically, I think. And just seeing the plot in that way, say, why is it shaped this way? Well, because that's what happens. We are invited. We see Jesus high and lifted up. We read letters from Jesus to his church. We sing psalms and pray, you know, we praise. And then we get this scroll read, preached. Then we celebrate The lord's supper and then we get commissioned out back out into the world and say come lord jesus you think yeah that's that's a great christian liturgy and a very powerful one so so those are six parallel ways that none of them are you know i don't think they're mutually exclusive at all but they are different ways of unfolding revealing the plot of revelation so i don't know if that acronym helps you um it may or may not that doesn't really bother me um but i think it's but you might find something in there to go oh that's a what I suppose i'm trying to give here is different coherent threads for reading the whole book, so that you don't just end up, well, what are the bowls again, but you end up standing back a little bit and going okay here's the story. This is what John is trying to evoke for us have we why don't we just dis- that because there's a lot on that page? Have a discussion on your table, and uh, perhaps you could ask this question: which of those six do you find most helpful, and why okay so if you were going to just to try and some i was, to, I was I always think this principle is a good one with any preaching. Could you explain it to an eight-year-old, right? So somebody, if an eight-year-old said to you, what's Revelation about? I wouldn't try and go, well, the seals and the bowls and the trumpet. I'd, I'd do something like this. I'd try and summarize the story in very simple categories. But if you were going to do that, which of these six would you find most useful and why? Okay. Okay. Are there any... Um, any anybody want to sh- share any comments or insight? I like... As far as possible, I love the kind of collaborative thing where people start... Say, yeah, like Rich Stamp already is, which is good. Like saying, this is what we were saying, and that was a helpful comment. So I think the, the key thing that out yeah. let them know. it was always meant to be like... Well. Yeah. And I love that I see that. Wonderful. Okay, so the romance theme really helps... Rich is saying because, and he's just, he's just saying, I'm in John 3 in my devotions, and the bit where John the Baptist is, has the temptation to say, yeah, I'm losing my disciples, but he says, he says of course I'm losing them. And they're supposed to go to the bridegroom, because I'm the, just the best man, but they're supposed to go down the roads and find the bridegroom where they're you know, the lover of their souls. It's brilliant, yeah. And we'll, actually, that will, we'll return to that on the very next page. Any other, any other, other kind of comments or helpful discussions? Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah, the eight-year-old might struggle with the romance theme, but within the Exodus theme might be easier, which is, yeah, that's true. Okay, great. Yeah? <laughs> My eight-year-old boy likes winning. Yeah, who doesn't? Yeah. So the victory theme at the centre, perhaps, yeah. And obviously, I don't think Yet, in some ways, you know, you, they're all. There's horses for courses, aren't there? They, they're all. I hope they all add some value somewhere. Um, but I think as they they supplement one another and they help you read it in different ways, which you just is not an exercise you have to go through with most books of the Bible, because it's quite obvious what the plot is. Even in the letters, it's kind of you. You, you can do it, can't you? Galatians. Well, the plot here is. <laughs> Paul is very cheesed off <laughs> about circumcising Gentiles or whatever. You know, I mean, it's quite easy to tell. Whereas with Revelation, like ah, you could get lost. And this is a bit of a let's look at the forest and not just the trees sort of exercise. So, okay. Any any others? Any other ones you thought found helpful, Dan? Yeah. Yes. So, Dan, so the extent to which the church is part of the victory over the devil, not just Jesus conquers the devil and that's good news for us, but actually we, in some ways, participate in the throwing down of the devil. I mean, that's exactly what, of course, happens in, in Luke 10, isn't it? They come back and they said, look, the demon submitted to it. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. As you guys preach the kingdom, this is what happened to the devil. And you think, yeah, that's a strong theme in this, in this book. It's not just us enjoying Jesus' victory, it's us conquering as well. Uh, which is why that word of overcomers is just used all the time. So, yeah, that's, that's really great. Um, the week I preached on that, on that section in the kind of overcomers, I, just, I got, it's something I got from Kevin DeYoung. I thought it was really helpful. He just said, you want to summarize the seven letters? He said, I'm going to summarize all seven letters with one word, and it's a word that a bunch of you in this room have on your clothes right now. And obviously everyone starts going, what on earth have I got written on my clothes? And how does he know what's written on my clothes? And just used the word Nike and just talked about the fact that the victory of Jesus, the, the Greek word nikau, the overcomer, is such a massive theme in Revelation. In some ways, it's the theme of the whole book. And some of you have got it on your socks. And it was just, it's just quite a helpful, sticky way of going, that's really what this book is about. I even, I went to the next level, because you have to do that, don't you? Um, of sort of, and used the Nike swoosh. And just said, actually, you go down for a very short time, but then up and up and up and up and up. And that's actually the way that victory happens in Revelations. You go down to death and then up and up. So um, I just find that sort of, that image of that being the central theme of Revelation. And it's about the victory of the church, not just the victory of the Lamb. It's glorious. So, good. I mean, I hope, in, this is the whole point. is just to throw out lots of things like that and hope that some of the mud sticks. Um, but to pick up on this is now going to be the Rich Stamp Memorial slide, it's going to make it look like he was cheating, but I don't think he was. Um, and this is to draw out exactly the theme you were, you were talking about, about revelation as, again, I, I think I agree with Rich, and probably many of us would take this view, that the John is the same John who wrote John's Gospel. And I would do that not from attempt, attempts to make external evidence cases for it, or even, even, even linguistic cases, although I think there are plenty of connections, but because of the... You know, the beautiful book ending of the way in which the book of Revelation ties up the loose ends created by the Gospel of John and um, would, would say even, it's not we often say, don't we, oh, there were four evangelists and only one of them wrote a sequel. Yeah? Luke was the only one who wrote a sequel. And I think i go, no, I think two of them did. I think one of them wrote a sequel in a historical narrative and the other one wrote a sequel in an apocalyptic form. But I think we have two evangel the first two evangelists write just the Gospel. And the other two evangelists write the gospel and... Now, obviously, that's controversial. There'll be plenty of people going, it can't possibly have been written by the same guy, you fool. Okay. Well, let's, again, we'll put them in the wrong corner. um, And for now, just assume that there's some sort of sense of merit to it. Obviously, there's a debate to be had there and it's valid. But this page would give you some examples just from the very beginning and end of what I then think is of a two-volume work and just see some of those connections. Obviously, you have famously, in the beginning was the word... And then John ending with, I'm the beginning and the end. All things came into being by him. I'm making all things new. The light shines in the darkness. The light now has banished the darkness to such an extent you don't need the sun anymore. The word tabernacled among us. Now the tabernacling of God is within, within humans. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is now no more curse or no more sin because the throne of God and the Lamb is there. You have John the Baptist, obviously, and this is to me is the, probably the strongest connection actually is the way that they use the language of testimony. The two or three witnesses theme in John and Revelation, to me, is much higher than the theme as it emerges, I would say, in any other New Testament book. It's a very strong theme. It comes through in all kinds of funny ways, like chapter 11. Who are the two witnesses? Well, it's like, well, it's the double witness. It's the very true witness of the church, because John is very, very interested in the idea of two witnesses, which, of course, is the whole point of the Gospel of John. So he himself was not the light. He just came to witness to the light. And at the very end of the book, he is the one who says that these things are true, and we know his testimony is true. There's two witnesses, the two depending on how, who you think they are, John and John the beloved disciple, John and Lazarus who might be the beloved disciple, let's not open that can of worms, whatever it might be, but you have Jesus at the centre with the witness of John the Baptist and the witness of the other guy, um, both pointing out that you know, the double witness is affirming, therefore it's true. And the same thing happens in Revelation. You have the, the double witness of the book of Revelation and the, effectively John the seer and John the Baptist are both, in a sense, key witnesses in presenting evidence in a trial of whether Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus and his disciples are invited to a wedding next in chapter... This is like a chiastic, right? So the beginning, chapter 1, goes up, and then Revelation chapters 19 to 22 go down. Jesus and his disciples are invited to a wedding. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's effectively fulfilling the promise, which and actually that question hovers throughout John's Gospel, doesn't it? it? is this the bridegroom? Like who, are we, and who's the bride then? Oh, Jesus is the bridegroom, like the text you just talked about, but who's the bride? Oh, we've just heard he's the bridegroom and now he's hanging out at a well with a woman who's had multiple husbands. Maybe that's gonna be, you know, is is she Israel somehow? No, no, not quite. Actually. So who is this woman then? Who is the wedding gonna be to? Is it Mary's appeared in the garden and she suddenly recognized who he is. Maybe she's gonna be the oh no, it's not her either. Oh, who is it gonna be? And the question remains like like Chekhov's gun just unresolved the whole way through until chapter 19 of Revelation saying blessed is the one who's invited to the wedding supper of the lamb the bride has now been unveiled chapter 21 so I think it's like a resolution of a very long searching quest <laughs> sorry the word has just been ruined by Monty Python and the Holy Grail um, but I, I, as I said it I thought oh no a, a long searching quest they're not they're coconuts and you're banging them together but that very long arc, narrative arc if we call it that the sense that at the very end we finally find out who this woman is that has been really tantalisingly hinted at right the way through the Gospel of John. I don't think it gets resolved until the end of Revelation. Jesus makes wine but says that his hour has not yet come. Jesus treads the winepress as the hour of his judgment has come. John the Baptist rejoices because he hears the voice of the bridegroom and, of course, the rejoicing at the voice of the bridegroom, the spirit of the bride, say, come, central to the end of Revelation. A promiscuous woman appears who is not the bride, I know that's maybe to do a disservice to the woman of Samaria who were you know generally as our archetypal seeker in evangelistic sermons but obviously she is at least in that context in the story she's presented as a woman who's had many husbands and of course the people of God in a sense through history have been a promiscuous woman who have had many certainly many suitors and many kind of husbands if you read Hosea or whatever um, but you got a promiscuous but you also get the promiscuous woman of Babylon who is the harlot, and it's definitely not the bride. You get in both cases like a sort of false bride figure. Judgment upon the temple is enacted by stopping buying and selling in Jerusalem, in the overturning of the temple tables, which famously is displaced in John's story. I'm going to upset D.A. Carson fans here, but I think John's put it at the front of his gospel, or I think it happened at the end, but John's put it there for because he wants to make this point. And I think one of the reasons he has put it there is because he's wanting to introduce the up and then the down with the two volume work with Revelation. That actually the judgment upon Babylon, if it's Jerusalem, come back to that later, is, in, is also enacted an stopping and buying and selling. But actually, the, the, the temple faces judgment, the t- Jerusalem temple faces judgment near the beginning of John and near the end of Revelation. Right. I'm asking you to swallow a lot there. We will come back to that in a, in a few minutes. Judas controls the buying and the selling and is referred to as destined for destruction. The beast controls the buying and the selling and is referred to as destined for destruction. Empire judges Jesus from a throne in the form of Pilate. And then Jesus judges empire from a throne in the great white throne in chapter 20. And those are some of them, but there's many others. And I think doing it that way, at least makes you go, language aside and external evidence aside and so on, I think there's just a a narrative coherence to a two-volume plot that we are expected to see Revelation as landing and resolving all kinds of unknown questions that the Gospel of John had left us with. And then, if you want to go to the next level... So, and he doesn't. Or he wants to clarify something before we go to the next level. Yeah, are you suggesting that he wrote... Not only did he write both, but he wrote them both at pretty much the same time? Am I suggesting that he wrote both at pretty much the same time? Not necessarily, although I think by... I think if you were going to... So, I'm suggesting that he would that he structured the narrative of John in such a way as to draw out the themes in the narrative of Revelation. The temple one is the one the one that makes me think maybe, maybe wrote Revelation first. So, you see, so the dating because because I think you see the Gospel of John is usually there are there are, you know this dating is unclear, right? I mean, this is this is the great you, you know the, the classic work on this still is probably 40 years old now. Maybe longer. When did John Robertson write his John Robinson write his uh, redating the New Testament? Sixties. Something. It was a long time back. He basically says New Testament scholarship has dated everything according to the premise that you can't predict the destruction of the temple, and therefore they've started off there and dated everything late. But let's say that Jesus was just the kind of Jewish prophet, either we would say as evangelicals, who knew, or just got lucky, like Jeremiah did about the Babylonian captivity. Maybe Jesus guessed it, right, and got it, but as a prophet who can read the Sign of the Times, if you don't assume that you can't predict the j- destruction of Jerusalem, then the whole New Testament dating structure that most scholars have operated with is wrong. And actually, the vast, majority, almost the whole New Testament could be dated to somewhere in the 60s or before. And he kind of did this book, called. it was kind of a bit of a joke, I think. I mean, it's a, like a, hey, let's just shake, rattle the cage of scholarship and see what happens. Pretty, you know, he's famously liberal bishop. But he just went, this is, just, this is all the house of cards. And I think if you go... And I say, he make, basically makes a lot of compelling points in that context. And goes, yeah, if you don't assume that you can't predict these events, which, of course, is, I don't assume for a moment. I think, of course, God knows. Um, then I think a lot of the, the assumptions that you'd find in the opening pages of commentaries about the dating of John and Revelation, have got a, a, you've got to be quite sceptical of quite a lot of them. And the reasons why there's scholarly consensus on things is often... When you trace it all back, much of it comes from that skepticism. not all of it there 's some other there 's good reasons as well but so I, I think I'd, i wouldn't yeah i, I wouldn 't be surprised if it even either written them together or even written Revelation first. Um, but I think the point is that this kind of thing presents there with an artistry that I think looks like the two are the product of the same mind who's at least trying to achieve something. It's possible, of course, that the temple cleansing is put there, nothing to do with Revelation's resolution, but because John wants to front load the conflict story between Jesus and the Judeans anyway for various other reasons that obviously do surface in his gospel because most of John is set in Jerusalem and most of the synoptics are set in Galilee. So you don't have to swallow that to see that he's structured it deliberately, but that's what I think. Great question. Um, yeah and I was going to say if you want to take it to the next level which some of us may now be very nervous of doing I think you could then make some fascinating contrasts on the ways in which Acts and Revelation tell the story of the early church if you say that's basically what they are they are you know imagine that Revelation had begun in my former book Theophilus I told you about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was ascended into heaven and now I'm going to tell you the story of what happened next if you read Revelation as if that's what it was obviously you'd have to be a partial preterist, like I am, but you might get some really interesting things. Wow, Luke just portrays this with a couple of unfortunate deaths in mid-service. Basically, this is the onward march of the triumph of the gospel, and the word of God continuing to spread and spread and spread and spread, and, spread, and it look, took over the world. Whereas you go revelations, Revelation, know, like, no, this is the onward march of the beast and the dragons, and they all trying to kill and eat the church, and yet they're both telling the same story, both telling a story of suffering and victory, but they've loaded the emphasis in very different ways because the people they're writing to are facing very different circumstances. Yeah. Anyway, it's all free. Well, actually, no, none of it's free. That's the problem, isn't it? You pay. I can't even use that line in this context because it's not free at all. Sorry. Um, anyway, <laughs> you can uh, refunds are available for stupid interpreter. I don't know what I should have said. Right now, I have I have thrown out some quirky possibilities there which I'm afraid I'm going to compound, but at least come clean on. And so we're doing a lot of this stuff now, while it's still relatively fresh to it, so that we don't have to get bogged down in the weeds on some of these matters when we get to the text itself, because we'll have bigger problems when we do. Um, But I do want to look at what I call fantastic beasts and where to find them. And this is an attempt to, to just provide in grid form, again, Management consultant background, so apologies. Put it in a chart and people will think you've added value. Um, but this is, basically, here are all of the weird and wonderful, not all of them, actually, but many of the weird and wonderful creatures in the book and who they are seen through two different pairs of glasses. So I've used Ian Paul and Peter Lightheart as comparisons here, although I, I'm, you know, they're not the only two at all, but I think this would be, just because I'd studied them both, reasonably carefully read them at the same time, they're both preterists. Um, but they give you interestingly different takes on who some of these characters are. And because this will come up in the way I read the book, you kind of want to come clean now a little bit on some of these things. You will be relieved to know that they agree on the identity of Satan. But it's interesting to see, I think, just the the seven different names given to Satan in the book. Now, most of these are not con- controversial, although some would say wormwood. They wouldn't read Wormwood as referring to the devil, but I think that's who it is. But Wormwood in chapter 8, verse 11, is the one who poisons the water. But the devil is a poisoner. The devil takes a good gifts of God and throws acid into it to kill people and actually does it at the point where everybody is vulnerable. He, you know, poisoning the wells in, you know, is pretty much the worst thing you can do in an agrarian culture. You poison, poison the water, everything dies. Um, it's probably not a very nice thing to do now, but it's certainly bad when you've got no water filtration or whatever. So it's, that's, who, that's one way of looking at the ministry of the devil. See, he is the wormwood who poisons. He's, he's a badon, the destroyer, and a polyon the destroyer. And in chapter 9, he's the one who actually is out just to, simply to obliterate, to kill. Right? It's a very obvious function of the devil, but it's worth saying he's there to try and bring death. He's the dragon, and the dragon, interestingly, in chapter 12, is poised as the one who wants to eat. That's the, what the dragon does. Is, you know, the breathing of fire is interestingly not the way he's introduced. There was a dragon poised, ready to devour the child as soon as he's born. And that the ministry, the ministry that's the wrong word for it entirely, isn't it? But the, the, the job description of the devil is that he's a dragon who wants to eat the people of God. And these are subtly different from each other. And the devil sometimes will not be able to destroy somebody, but will try and eat them or will try and poison them. And this is what he does. He is described as the serpent, obviously, back to the garden story, of the, the seducer, the one who leads astray and says, oh, come on, come over here with me, let's have a different relationship. He is the, the Satan, the accuser, the accuser of the brothers who's been thrown down. He's that, he's that guy. And he, target, In our kind of culture, he probably seduces and accuses far more than he flat out destroys and devours. Doesn't in every generation? In ours, that's probably the, he's found that the most successful. And of course the devil, the slanderer, the diabolos, the one who speaks lies. Why not? We would probably believe all of those things about the devil, but it's not a bad thing to see them all in one place and go, yeah, that's a, that, the devil has a sevenfold, I don't mean ministry, but you know, he, it's not just we have a sevenfold Christ and a sevenfold church, we have a sevenfold devil as well who is doing his best to take out the church, but what taking out the church looks like will vary dramatically according to context and generation and so on, and in our day, it's, it's the, I'm afraid it's the classic line from The Usual Suspects, isn't it? The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And you get a lot of that in the Screwtape Letters, where Lewis says, hey, don't... People, if people can laugh at the devil and think stupid people believing in pitchforks and horns and all the rest, what a nonsense. That's the best thing the devil can possibly get because he can do all of these things with impunity because no one believes he's even real. So it's just kind of helpful to have a bit of a... If I can call it a theology of the devil... You know, you know what I mean, um, but that's so. Those all refer to well, who we would now usually refer to as Satan or the devil. But we've got some other interesting characters who we will meet later on. The cavalry invasion from the east—they would, you know—it takes place in chapter nine. Be interpreted in different ways by these two interpreters. If you read it very politically, you would see the cavalry invasion from the east as being the Parthians, or we might now say the Persians, crossing the Euphrates to attack Rome. And the threat from the east has been something that's coloured, you know, Western mythology right through to the Cold War, and still does in some ways. And probably, imagine some degree, America, China. I mean, people just frame it that way. East-West is a common way of doing it. In a way that, you know, you get north and south, you get east and west, and that you could read that in a quite a political way. That's what's going on. It's about a political attack. Lightheart reads it differently. He says this is an angelic cavalry staging a reconquest of the land, like Israel returning from exile. It's not a political threat at all. It's a spiritual description of. God returning to his land through his people the sea beast uh, or the, you know, the beast out of the sea the false king want, you know, seven heads, ten horns, all that both these guys agree, Rome and I think, yeah I, if you're a futurist or a historicist you, you obviously probably don't do that but I'm not and from now on I'll probably stop putting that caveat in there because it'll become annoying but this is a preacherist assumption or a preacherist idealist assumption but it's Rome I think the land beast on the other hand more controversial a land beast is a false prophet who supports the sea beast and again we'll come to the text tomorrow but the land beast is somebody who supports by religious means what the sea beast is doing through political means so the alliance between the beasts is the alliance between religious power in service of state power in destroying the church but who the religious power is will be a source of disagreement and, he and Paul says this is local pagan religion which supports Rome through its temples and gets destroyed, and Lighthouse says I think it's Jewish priests and leaders who support Rome, persecute the church and get destroyed. And they've both got arguments for their position, but you just you have to you have to land somewhere on that. The scarlet beast in chapter seventeen is I think is definitely Rome. It's certainly, if we're right about the beast in chapter thirteen, sits on seven hills. Um, you know. Wants to devour the woman, all that. I think it's. I think it's definitely Rome. And the mark of the beast, or the you know the beast's mark and number, is that of Nero. Both of them would agree on that. And give. We'll come to that. Don't worry. And give some defence of that later. Um, the woman who is in labour in chapter twelve, they'd both say Israel, but this is where. Yeah, this is where we have have to ward off a pitfall, but I think it can be warded off. Um, the woman is Israel, who's the one who gives birth to a male child and is protected from the dragon for three and a half years in the wilderness. But Lightheart then goes further and says, yeah, and that woman is the same woman who reappears in very different clothing in chapter 17, dressed as a prostitute. And that is very controversial, but it's when, yeah, we will make, try and make that case and try and present that case well when we get there. I actually found it much more compelling than I expected to. Um. Uh, that is That effectively Israel has become Babylon. And, that, and in the, the thing we have to ward off at this point, and I, I, funny enough, I recommended Lightheart's Commentary online while I was reading it. And, you know, you get silly comments on Twitter from people. And somebody had uh, just tweeted back, oh, I'm not going to read anything by that anti Semite. I was like, wow, that's fine talk. Why, why do you say that? And I, as I was reading the book, I thought, this, is, this interpretation will be accused of being anti Semitic because people say, you're saying that Israel is. Babylon is hated by God and so on. And of course, at that point I say, well, to the extent that I'm saying it, I'm saying exactly what Hosea and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Jesus, when he goes, Oh, Jerusalem, the city that stones the prophets and kills I am saying exactly what he says in the parable of the wicked tenants. I'm saying what all the apostles are saying. You know, I don't think that's remotely anti-Semitic. That's being said by Jewish people in critique of Jewish leadership at that time, saying, in the sense you are oppressing the true people of God, and that's what Jewish prophets have done from Moses onwards. So I think if you throw the baby out there and say, no, anybody that critiques Israel with that kind of prostitute language is anti-Semitic, most of the prophets are anti-Semitic as well. And I don't think you should go anywhere near that. So I think there's there's a case to be made there, personally. But I can also see why it makes people nervous. But I think there's a a much stronger case to be made for it than might immediately be apparent. And we will, I'm sure, debate that as we go. Um, and then this is where it really, the, ch- the chickens come home to roost on that because then they, you have to decide who you think the harlot is. Right? So the harlot, it, the harlot and Egypt and Sodom and Babylon seem to be interchangeable terms for the same entity, whatever that is. And for Ian, that's Rome because Rome, Rome is Babylon, because Rome is the great city which has dominion over the kings of the earth. Rome is the city who is judged for her immorality, sits on many waters and seven hills and has prospered through seafaring and trade. And Ian would say, and we've discussed it, and he would say, yeah, that you, there's no way Jerusalem is made prosperous through seafaring trade, for instance. Whereas Lyot would say, yes, there is, using the temple backstory in the story of 1 Kings in some detail and all of the trades, you know, the trade that takes place there with ivory, gold, silver, etc., language of Solomon. But then says, hang on, when we get introduced to the great city, we are specifically told it's the city where the Lord was crucified, which is Jerusalem. And when she appears, she's dressed as a priest, and she gets hated by the beast. She can't be the same person as the beast because the beast's trying to kill her, and she gets burned and set on fire by the beast, which is what happened to Jerusalem by Rome. And she's responsible for the blood of the saints and the prophets, which is what Jesus says of Jerusalem. And she's eventually destroyed and burned. And that debate will recur, I'm sure. And we will. I'm not going to. You know, we've already. I already started getting into some of it with somebody before the session even started. It's a. It's an interesting debate. By the way, just to reassure you in some ways, I, I, I actually preached this passage last Sunday and I don't think, I think we could have preached the whole book of Revelation exactly the same way and come to a different conclusion on this than I ultimately did. So I ultimately side here on Jerusalem, but most of the book was not actually affected by that, less than I thought. Um, but of course, if you don't see Israelite persecution of the church as playing any role in Revelation, you, you will interpret Passover differently. But if I was to go back to my... Acts and Revelation. So what's the story in Acts? Who's oppressing the church? You say, Well, it's religious power in support of state power. And actually, Jesus is killed by the Jews handing them over to the Romans, and Paul is killed by the Jews handing him over to the Romans, and this, you know, what happens in Thessalonica, what happens in Berea, what's happening? You think, oh, hang on, that's that's the story of the early church, is that there is opposition from the, initially it's much more from the Jews than it is from Rome. And then I think the same thing's happening in Revelation. But we can yell at one another about that later on, I'm sure. Um, why don't, Just because that's controversial and sticky, let's take a moment to process that. What do you think about what I've just said? I know I haven't given the other side of the argument as strongly. We will have time for that in due course. Um, and we, I, we are going to do that. We will have a bit of a discussion about that on the, on the Thursday. But what do you think about that? Shoot from the hip and anything else on the Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. I will, we'll come back to that question in a minute. But uh, just take a few minutes to chew that one over. And rebut it if need be. <laughs> okay. Now we're not going to, you know, have time to get into the ins and outs of all of. The, I know some of you are doing it. I could walk past and I could see people giving um, back and forth on that. But we will, we will return to that. We'll try and make a strong case for both, both views there. But uh, yeah, it'll colour the way we I read the rest, and that in the end you can't hide that. So. It might, it might be as well. We've got um, dinner is going to be here in a few minutes, so it, which will be nice. And we've got loaded. by the way, it would be really nice to give them a big thank you when they come in and serve us. But um, we've got a whole army of people back there. It's amazing. Um, but we're going to just take two more pages. And this one, as, a, as, as curry and spices are about to arrive, probably not a bad page to consider. Um, the idea that Revelation is the most sensory book in the Bible. And I just think there's a, a really, this is, Back to the point that somebody made earlier about Orthodox worship, um, but much more sensory in many ways than Orthodox worship. But it is the noisiest and most visual and most aromatic and most tactile and tastiest book, literally a tasty book, in the sense that it is sweet as honey in his mouth and then turns his stomach bitter in the Bible by a wide margin. There is no book that gets close to Revelation's tactileness. Um, and you could say there's something sacramental about it, there's something about God being felt and tasted and drunk and eaten and so on in this book that outstrips any other book in scripture so we have sound right there's lots of that then i heard blessed are those who read aloud and you hear i think that's implicit in reading the bible in any book of the bible but revelation comes out and says actually hearing the words not just reading them hearing them read my encouragement by the way little preaching series tip if someone's going to do revelation we decided quite late in the day to read the whole book in the you know that's not normally what you do with quite a long book if you 're going to do it in twelve weeks, you'd say, "Well, oh, you can't read two chapters in a Sunday, but we went I think we're going to do that anyway, and we did and i it's been really important for us. I think just the very this statement blessed are those who hear it like uh, not just seeing it on the page but hearing it spoken trumpets, shouts, waterfalls, harps, thunders, choirs, goodness a lot it's a noisy book if you the, what is the volume of every biblical book, right? Revelation's the loudest. By miles. Myriads upon myriads of angels singing stuff. Right? Sight. Then I saw. Then I saw. That it's, of course, it's a vision, so it's easier to do. But the vividness of the imagery is so powerful as well, isn't it? Then I looked, and behold, I saw. I saw. I saw. Brightness. Really lurid colours. Precious stones. Glorious visions. Grotesque characters with this many heads and that many horns, and this coming out of their mouth, and blood everywhere. Evocative images. I mean, it's like, it's a proper cartoon you know pantomime luridness to it isn't there it's very very vivid visually smell which probably is the sense that we're least used to thinking about when it is connection with theology i mean you do visual theology and auditory theology but aromatic theology has probably fallen on hard times i'm not sure if it was ever a big deal except of course if you do you go and you're involved in animal sacrifice in ancient israel you're going to know all about the smell and of course we're just disconnected from that aren't we now, what are you, what's the smell of this room I don't know, sort of air freshener. Coffee is what most church buildings smell of now, isn't it? Generally, genuinely, that's what you smell. Whereas this is a very, very sensory book. Smoke. Smoke seems to convey a lot of meaning in Revelation. And I'm not saying you can ever do this, but if somebody found a way of producing a Bible that was able to, if we ever got technology of VR, where it could be that you could smell what was being done in the book. Imagine, because you know how smell connects to your memory in a way that other senses don't. You know, you walk down, a, sometimes you're in a corridor and you smell and you think, I had it once. That, that varnish on that floor smells exactly like the varnish on the floor in my prep school when I was 11 years old. And it's just taken me straight there in a way that I don't think any sight or sound ever would have. Smells very vivid like that. And Revelation's full of it. Smoke, cinnamon, spice, myrrh, bowls of wine, incense, been everywhere. Peterson, the sense of smell is the sensory analogue to prayer. I'm not 100% sure I know what that means, but I quite like, I I think I can totally buy that incense is symbolic of prayer, but I sort of, the sensory analog is like, does that mean when I'm, I'm kind of praying, I'm not quite sure what he's saying, but it's again a bit like the Howard Kellett sort of approach, like, don't know what it means, but I like it. Um, That's kind of what I feel with that. Touch, yeah, sorry, you're now going to get stuck with that label, but I know you can wear it. Um, Touch, he laid his hand on me. Hands holding and sweeping, sickles, stars, scrolls, palms, reeds, hearts, cups, and keys. Right, The hands of Jesus have always got things in. He's giving things to people, saying, take this and hold it. And he's touching this and waving that around and so on. Marks put on the forehead, on seals. All that sort of, just very, very physical book. And then, of course, taste. Because you are lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Sweet as honey, but bitter. The drunken harlot. ruling you imagine just like a drunk woman? I think of, um, you know, the... <laughs> The scene in uh, early on in Les Miserables, you know, lovely ladies, when they're all these drunken, basically drunken harlots, aren't they? And you think, that's the imagery he's using. It's just very kind of... The, imagine what their breath smells like. And that's what, that's what John is doing. He's just evoking the sort of... You know, even the fact that things have been tasted and swallowed, the grapes of wrath, the marriage feast. Just a very, very sensory book. And again, it's good to draw that out as we think about it and pray about it almost. A, particularly for me, it was smell. I just like, wow, I'd, I don't want to just read the word smoke. I want mean, to actually, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying you have to start a bonfire when you read it, but you know what I mean. It's actually not a bad thing to engage with the, the senses and, and so on as we read the book. And then finally, because I think this is probably where this will practically land for many of us as we're uh, thinking about this, or at least if that survey at the start was anything to go by, a bunch of us are thinking, how do you preach this? Um, I can't possibly tell you how to, how to preach it in a way except that it's probably not a bad I, Is that not on here? Preaching Revelation, no idea, and you guys are thinking, "What's he going to say?" Oh, sorry, sorry. I am. By the way, if you want, if you want it, and you don't want to take a grainy picture on your phone, if you contact Judith through the, the email that you've received from the conference, we'll get that, that page sent out too. If you just say, "Send the Preaching Revelation page," sorry, I didn't realise I'd not updated that. I did a bit of work on this on Friday, but after she'd sent it out. Um, but this is. This is three different ways of doing it. Ours, the one we just done is in the middle. Um, and, uh, but it's effectively, I mean, Peterson's way of dividing up his book, our preaching series titles, and then what application you're going to bring. The application is kind of obvious when you wrestle with the text anyway. But Peterson, I love that we didn't use it, but I love the, we used it as a strapline for the series, but we didn't use it as a structure for every message. But Peterson's language of the last word is just great. So the last word on Christ, the Church, worship, evil, and so on—it's really good. Like it, it's very sticky. It it helps you get it. Um, In the end, I thought I don't. For instance, I don't really want to do chapters twelve to fourteen on politics. I just felt like that would be selling short. What I mean, it's a it's great for the structure, but I just didn't think it would quite work for a preaching series. And so in the end, we went let's let's not use a tagline like that that dominates the series at least for us but i think you're writing a book it makes a lot of sense um but so what we, we did we went jesus unveil we did we broke it up this way and i hope it helps you just to see how you group the chaps if you wanted to do it inside 12 weeks which uh, we did that you will the the sharp eyed among you will notice that that actually is 13 or 14 um, because, in the end, I cheated, and I just I thought I cannot preach chapters eight to eleven in one go, so we did a, a, in an evening seminar, we expanded chapters eight and nine, which I think are the hardest in the book. Um, I think chapter, Revelation nine is the weirdest chapter of the Bible, I think, and so I've, I just don 't know how you 're going to preach that on a, on a Sunday along with everything else. so we went for, we put a thirteenth week in, but I might be, this might be completely unnecessary because you might think oh we 'd happily do a twenty two week series in a book. My experience of a lot of the friends of I've got in this room is a lot of us don't do series at that length, unless we're from Brighton. And because of that, probably would have to shy away from it and go for either a half series, which you don't really want to do, or try and keep moving through the book at quite a pace and do it within a term. If that's not relevant for you, then obviously you can just do the whole thing as long as you like. But that's how we did it, and uh, I thought that might be helpful. I, just, I found, that the, as we went through, that the language of unveiling, unmasking, disclosing was really helpful. That you are, we are ripping the veil off, we are unmasking Jesus and and the church, but also evil and injustice and so on. And that the you know even just this last week, seeing the effect of a book of the Bible that says judgment will come on those who have committed injustices against you. And there's a lot of people in my church for whom that's very very significant, and it, and there will be in yours too. And so that sort of sense of vindication is coming and. God is ripping the mask off, like taking the hood off a, a clansman. Effectively, that's we are showing you the grotesqueness of evil. That's why this book is so vivid and vile in places. It's because it wants you to see how viscerally unpleasant and horrible some of those realities are. So we use the language of unveiling and unmasking quite a lot. But that, again, may be a help in just navigating the book if you, to get you started with a preaching series if you haven't already mapped it out. I'm going to pause there, uh, give you any any kind of time for just a couple of minutes of questions and then actually dinner will be with us fairly shortly they're just still getting it ready but so anybody got any questions in these sort of last yeah. five minutes or so for now mm. I'm gonna to have to be honest here I'm not an expert on patristic readings of revelation um, I I've seen plenty of quotes of the way fathers handled specific texts and parts of it and obviously you know Preterism, the, the, the thing with the Fathers is that Preterism and Historicism are the same thing. If you're living very near the time, you don't have to make the distinction, do you? And Futurism, to some degree. Um, I, but I think where I, what I do know about the Fathers is that you, you had a fairly strong millennial tradition in the early Fathers in the 2nd and 3rd century. And I think you'd possibly say a pre-millennial majority position which basically puts some of the book more into the future, until Augustine, who is... Whether or not he ever used a, equi- an equivalent word of amillennial, I'm not sure. But Augustine gave a much more amillennial reading of the whole book and, and of the whole of Christian eschatology, actually. And then, so I, I'm, and when it comes to unbundling the chronology at the end, I would be a bit clearer. So you have Justin Martyr and a number of others saying, no, we are looking for a future thousand-year reign and then, effectively with Augustine, you get what then becomes really the majority position for the next thousand years, which is no, we're not. That's the age we're in now, and that affects the way you read the whole of Revelation. But I don't, I'm not an expert on how, I have no idea what, you know, Basil or Irenaeus or Athanasius made of the reading of Revelation. I just haven't read enough to know, I'm afraid. Do you know? Oh, I wondered if you were putting, I wondered if you were going to help me out. No, you're going to give me another problem. (laughs) Thanks. Yes, yeah, so the question is, if revelation was written in the '90s and you're saying you're open to that, then doesn't that shift the balance between preterism and idealism? And I think the answer is yes. I might have got my words in a tangle, by the way. What I meant to say with the 70/30 thing was I'm 70 percent it's written in the '60s, 30 percent it's written in the '90s, rather than I 'm 70 percent preterist, 30 percent idealist. Um, but yes, it, I think it does. I think that the, the balance of preacher, the, the, the relevance for ongoing, because effectively, if you say it's written in the 90s, but it's talking a lot about, and by the way, so, you know, that's what Ian Paul would do. Ian Paul would say, I think this is written in the 90s. So it's not a weird, this isn't a weird Wilsonism, but I think Nero is the beast and you know the scarlet beast is Rome and all the rest. So a lot of it is about that. The question and I think everybody would agree that it is. In fact, I suspect you would as well. We were talking about it. A lot of the book is about the events leading up to AD 70. The question is whether the climactic bit of the fall of Babylon is about that. That's much more a line in the sand that you, you know, much more a fork in the road. I should say that you either go this way or that. Yes, if the book's written later than the fall of Jerusalem, it's more idealisty, and if it's written before the fall of Jerusalem, it's more preterist-y. But I, I personally, I'm quite happy preaching as if it's from written in the 60s and it's prophetic, and that's generally where I would go. But if someone was to produce. Incontrovertible evidence that it was written in the 90s. I don't think that would mean it doesn't, much of it doesn't refer to AD 70. I think a lot of it still does, in the same way that I would say was true of Luke. But I agree, it it breaks the connection to a greater degree if you read it that way. So I'd personally say this is written about 67 68, but I, I don't mind if people are different on that. One more, Simeon. Does the fact that you, if you read harlot, the Harlot as Jerusalem rather than Rome, does it affect the application in your preaching? To a degree, it does, um, but in many ways, the key line is not the one between who you think the Harlot is, but it's whether or not you think any symbol in Revelation is referring to Israel's religious attack on the church as well as Rome's political attack on the church. So, I think, for instance, you could, if you go with, if you went with Ian on on the on the Harlots. But you said, actually, but I think the beast out of the land could refer to Israel or could refer to religious power in general in the empire, including the Jews. I, don't, I think you'd still end up in the same place. You'd say, basically, the church faces an existential threat from political power and religious power, but religious power in support of state power is the most dangerous of all. In our day, that's not Judaism, so it doesn't... That's why I said my application is the furthest thing from anti-Semitic, because in many ways I'm saying the people who really need to face a warning here in religious power are Christians who think they're safe. That's the prob- That's who you are in this story. So I don't think it particularly skews your application. But I think if you read the whole book and said, I don't see any Jewish persecution of the church in this book, I, I think you'd be mad, because I think it repeatedly talks about being people who say they're Jews and aren't and are a synagogue of Satan. And I say, if, you've got to, if you're worried about the language, you're going to be worried about John's own language, not just about the interpretation of it that I'm giving. But I think if you didn't see any of that, that would affect your exegesis. But I, I don't think anybody does that, because the letters to the seven churches are very explicitly talking about the fact that there are, there's an attack from the Jews amongst people. So I, I'm, I read the you know, beast and false prophet, Balaam, Balaam Balak, religious and political power. And I think in our day, that's not Israel or Rome, so the application is very different anyway. I do talk about... I talked about white supremacy. I talked about Islamic fundamentalism. I talked about lots of ways in which state power and religious power align in our day but I don't think it would affect the reading in the first century. Okay, it's exactly 7.30, and I think we're going to have a go.